Good evening, folks, and a hearty welcome to our drive-in theater. We have a wonderful evening's entertainment lined up for you, one that will provide several hours of pleasurable relaxation and diversion for you and your family. Hello and welcome to a special bonus episode of Dead City Drive-In. I'm Brandon Windish. And I'm Chris Holcomb. And, you know, look, guys, sometimes we get a little tired doing our programming for the drive-in gods. Yeah, they kind of put the screws to us on this one, you know, where you're just always work, 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 You know, we don't always get to watch things that we want to watch, so we've decided today that we were going to sneak into our... Into our car, um, our nineteen fifty eight Plymouth Fury. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were going to enjoy a little movie ourselves. One of uh, one of my very favorites. Um, one of our one a Dead City staple, as far as we're concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, it's definitely at the top of the list for both of us. Yeah, we're talking about George A. Romero and Stephen King's Creep Show, nineteen eighty two. Wow, unbelievable! This is a long time ago. Directed by George Romero. Mm-hmm. Based on a screenplay by Stephen King. Produced by Richard P. Rubenstein. That's right. Mm-hmm. Starring, oh my God, it just goes on a and on. Bevy, I mean, uh, Vivica Lindfors, uh, Ed Harris, Ted Danson, Galen Ross, uh, Leslie Nielsen. Hal Holbrook, Hal Fritz, Holbrook Weaver. Fritz Weaver. Yeah, Adrian Barboob. <laughs> it's just an incredible yes. cast. E.G. Marshall. You guys and will- Stephen King himself. There's a little bit of a set of instructions for you to follow Mm -hmm. in order for this to work out properly. Um, What I'm going to do is, at a certain point, very soon, I'm going to say now. And when I say now, you're going to pause this recording on whatever you're listening to, and you're going to put on the film Creepshow. And then as soon as you press play on Creepshow, and your screen, the movie starts... Your screen will deliver a Warner Brothers logo as soon as that screen turns full red with the Warner Brothers communications logo fully engorged on the screen. You're going to <laughs> engorged. You're going to press play. Blood red. The entire screen is blood red and in white letters it will say a Warner Brothers communication. And at which point you will press play on this recording and you will join us in a feature length commentary. Yeah, we will sync up. That's right. So grab your tits, hold on to your dicks. This is going to be a fun little ride. Okay, so get ready. Here we go. When I say now, pause this recording, pull up Creep Show, press play when the screen turns fully red with the Warner Brothers logo. And now. Well, here we are. And if you didn't fuck it up, you'll be here with us. <laughs> Warner Communications. I love that old school logo. Mm-hmm. We are talking about Stephen King, George Romero's Creep Show. I'm so excited. Mm-hmm. Hey, I recognize that voice. I thought you were going to say I recognize that house. No, no, it's just the voice. <laughs> so people don't really think that this is actually a Halloween movie. It never I, gets... I guess so. Yeah, you get that jack lantern in the window. You've got the wind. It's one of those juniper bushes. <laughs> <laughs> so now I want gin for some reason. I don't know. 
so Creep Show was uh, a movie that was made. Um, oh, take that, Joe Hill! <laughs> <laughs> it's for heart shaped box. Um, Creep Show uh, was a collaboration between George Romero and Stephen King after they had attempted to get uh, the stand off the ground. Yeah, and uh, it was going to take a good three years for them to get the financing going. So they were like, you know what? We don't want to wait three years. Yeah, let's do something in the meantime. So they churned out this movie, essentially. Well, they both had this mutual love for EC Comics. And for anybody who doesn't know EC Comics, entertaining comics. Yes. The guys that brought you Mad Magazine. Yes. Um, started William out, Gaines. That's right. Good old Bill Gaines himself. Uh, well, actually, his dad uh, started off making these Bible comics. Yeah. And then Bill uh, took over and made it entertaining comments, uh, comics and started making war, crime, and especially horror comics. Tales from the Crypt, Vault of Horror. The um, Haunt of Fear, Shock Suspense Stories. Just excellent, excellent stuff with excellent, beautiful art, gory, gore stuff, monsters, heads getting cut off, zombies coming back from the grave, bugs crawling out of people's faces, and they got in a lot of trouble. Yeah. Um, some dipshit wrote a uh, a thing called The Seduction of the Innocent, mm-hmm. a pamphlet that was distributed. Was it the Worthen Report or whatever? The yeah, Worthen the, Commission that yes, came out? Yes, yes. And uh, they basically banned these comic books from existing. Yeah, because the uh, the seduction of the youth and uh, delinquency was basically created by horror comics. That's right. And this movie starts us off just with that. We get Tom Atkins telling us, I don't want you reading that crap. And then smacks Joe Hill across the face. And Joe Hill is, of course, Stephen King's son mm-hmm. um, with a little cameo in this movie. And we go right into this amazingly animated opening credit sequence. With this lovely music that was composed by John Harrison. Who is a George Romero staple. Mm-hmm. He's a, he's an, He also was the assistant director on this movie. Yeah. Um, he was the zombie in Dawn of the Dead that gets the screwdriver in his ear. That's right. Yeah. And then he went on to not only score this movie, he also scored Day of the dead yep and then went on to be the director of another pretty decent george romero anthology film tales from the dark side the movie that's right this cast is incredible i mean we'll we'll probably talk about them as they come up on the screen as opposed to in here but uh you see it and you just go like now you're like look like holy fuck you know these people weren't really uh famous at the time that they uh, started this movie not all of them i should say Stephen King obviously was, um, <laughs> but this uh, there's uh, Barbara Anderson, costume design. Her husband is Cletus Anderson, who was the production mm-hmm. designer on this film as well. Oh, there you go. Um, we get great effects old by Tom Savini. Yep. And look, I just love and Michael Gornick, who had been working as a DP for Romero. I mean, he shot Dawn of the Dead. He ended up, I think, directing Creep Show too. Yes, actually, he did. Um, and we're right into the first story, which is Father's Day. Um, you know, the thing about all of these movies, or every... Chris, right before you started, you asked me, what's your favorite... <laughs> yeah, what's your favorite segment out of this movie? It's impossible. Like, if you ask me right now... Hey, Brandon, what's your favorite segment in Creepshow? Father's Day. Yeah, right on. Right on. Make sure oh, you be ask sure to me. ask you that in the next one. <laughs> see what you like when there. Oh, and there's Warner Shook. What what's Warner Shook been in? Uh, he was in Night Riders, which was another Romero film. Night Riders was done just before this. A little bit of information on that, actually. Yeah. Um, 
so uh, uh, George Romero formed a company uh, with Rubenstein and a, another gentleman, yeah, uh, named called Laurel Entertainment, and uh, they had a three picture contract. Thought you were going to say they had a three way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure at one point they did. Um, it was the 80s, after all. Yeah, it's true. A uh, three picture deal. Uh, the first picture that got off the ground for them was Night Riders. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, did not make any money. But it was a labor labor of love. It's an amazing movie. It really man. is. I mean, it's you've got a group of basically Renaissance fair performers that do jousting tournaments on motorcycles, which is a uh, pretty friggin' awesome. Ed Harris was uh, the King Arthur type character in that. And for those uh, taking note, you also get a uh, briefly nude Patricia Tallman. Yes, Patty Tallman was in that movie. I guess. Uh huh. And Warner Shook. Actually, it's kind of interesting because like Night Riders was a movie that really kind of dealt with prejudice and everything. I mean, people treated the uh, the traveling Renaissance performers pretty terribly. And actually, Warner Shook, who plays, uh, I guess the was it the grandson of? I don't remember. I really don't. I, I, well, mean, no, I mean, he's, he plays the grandson in, in Creepshow. But oh, actually, yes. he was one of the performers, and uh, he was a gay character in in Night Riders. And of course, there was like a lot of like townies and stuff that were you know being cruel to him. And there's like there's this actually lovely scene in Night Riders where Warner Shook's character and his boyfriend actually do like a commitment ceremony to one another. I mean, it's you know super romantic, but I mean. George Romero was very, very progressive, not only Absolutely. with you know, you know, racial issues as well, but I mean, also with you know, sexuality and gay rights and, and that sort of thing. Um, and you know, he was also just remarkably loyal to the people that he worked with. They talk about how he had a family of filmmakers, and it's very true. I mean, he utilized the same crew members in various positions. Now, this now Creepshow was his first. People call it a studio film, but it actually was not a studio film. This this movie was distributed by Warner Brothers, mm-hmm. but before the movie got picked up, there was going to be an independent release, yeah. um, just like all of his other movies. But Creepshow was the first time George Romero had a little bit of a budget to play with, and I think the budget for this movie was around $5 million, um, which in 1982, um, for George Romero, is pretty high. Yeah. Um, Warner Brothers, it it went over so well. The screenings went great. The test screening was that Warner Brothers picked it up and um, gave it a major distribution. And it made very good money uh, for the time. It made over $30 million, opened at number one. um, And it was the biggest hit that George Romero ever had, like superficially. As, As the years have gone on, I'm sure the dead series have pulled in way more. more, But, uh, for me, this is this is. I don't know. I don't know how to really. You know what? I'll skip that part for now. We'll we'll, we'll talk about where it lays in our love of Romero a little bit later. Um, there's just there's so much style, and you know the the tongue is so firmly planted in cheek in this movie. Um, but you know the editing. I mean, really, what what Romero and what Stephen King wanted to do is they wanted to create a visual comic book. I mean, a moving comic book, and. To this day, I just don't feel that it's been bested. Like, this is the first time, really, that this kind of style had been done. So you talk about progressive. Well, I mean, yes, stylistically, this movie kind of stands on its own. I mean, there were other 
anthology films. I mean, anthology films, particularly for the horror genre, have been out for a very, very long time. Um, Amicus you know, was very, well, yeah, very and, proud and of they those. They take EC comic properties too. You've got Literally. Tales from the Crypt and The Vault of Horror that they made in the in the early seventies. Um, and I mean, I enjoy those films too. And you can really see the influence of those movies on this particular film as well. There's a couple Absolutely. sequences. I mean, the whole Arthur Grimsdyke sequence where he comes out of the grave is in Tales from the Crypt. In Tales from the Crypt. Is so reminiscent when Nathan Granville comes out of his grave in this right, film. Right, right. But the use of these crazy color washes, uh, dutched camera angles, overlays and stuff that they put on the actual film itself and everything. Uh, it makes Ang Lee look like a fucking dipshit for doing it in the Hulk. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. mean, look at this. This is yeah. wild. Like... This hadn't been seen before, yeah. and it's like so unique and such a like a visually stunning presentation. It also kind of cuts some of the uh, the horror, um, the intensity out in in a good way. Yeah, uh, can I tell you a quick little thing? Sure. Um, this movie, uh, growing up, I was actually I don't know how you were, Chris. I don't at least I don't recall, but like. Um, I wasn't allowed to just watch any horror film I wanted. Neither was I. Okay. So this was a movie that uh, I had a sleepover one night, and my dad rented it for us. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was about 10 years old at the time, and I remember that it was a big deal because my dad was letting me watch an R-rated film. Yeah. And uh, I, I remember we all watched it that night just laughing and screaming and cheering. It delivered... Everything that I could have ever wanted a horror movie to deliver on. And I just remember even at that young age, well, yeah, there's some gross shit that happens in this movie. Mm -hmm. It, it, like I was saying a few minutes ago, the intensity of it is undercut by the playfulness of the tone yeah. and the presentational style of the film. And it makes it a palatable um, movie for a young uh, burgeoning horror nerd. Yeah. <laughs> How about I mean, you, Chris? How, how did you... I, I like the idea, I mean, in, in your your use of the term playfulness, because this movie is nothing if it's not playful. Uh, the acting is a little over the top. Although, I mean, this moment right here with Vivica Linfers, she's incredible yeah. in this little bit. This improvisation yeah. that she's doing here, she's so good. I heard that she was very difficult um, on the set, which is interesting she was demanding certain things to drink yeah um and she was interviewed for a fangoria uh uh article at the time of this movie's release more or less where she was like i didn't want to make this movie but then she said but i had a great time george romero was awesome you know yeah so that was kind of interesting. I'm sorry I cut you off about that. I just wanted no. to mention Vivica here because no, she's I mean, going to be leaving us soon. The movie's highly stylized. Uh you know the tone that, that playful attitude that you mentioned before, uh, it, it really, it does. It delivers. It delivers, um, and it does. I think it tempers the horror. You know, it's it's chilling and titillating all at the same time. Without being extreme. I mean, the the there's enough violence there to please, like, violence. I'm saying, like, I'm a deviant. But, like, you know, now at my age watching movies, you know, I, I want something to deliver in some capacity. Yeah. And I love that this, for somebody is, who's seen everything like I have, it is like you have, mm -hmm. as jaded as we are of viewers. Here he comes. It still delivers 
I love the Look saturation. Look at this red wash. You know, it's they put this wash on him. Mealworms. Oh. And of course that vocal effect that they put on there too through the synth. Yep. So that um, Nathan is played by John Amplis. Really? That's John Amplis? Yeah. Martin himself? That's right. <laughs> Buried in a hole? Yeah. <laughs> we talk about family. Yep. You know, uh, that's, that is good old John Amplis himself uh, stuck in the Nathan, uh, the Nathan costume, zombie costume, but committed. And there goes uh, Vivica. And here comes one and of my actually, favorite yeah, bits, Here by we the have way. You know, Ed Harris doing his best Crispin Glover impression. <laughs> oh, my God. Look at that. I mean, seriously, everybody kind of, you know, points out Crispin Glover's dance in, in Friday the 13th Part 4. But look at you got to look at Ed Harris's dancing in Creepshow. You know what's, what's awesome about Look at him. He's so funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's great is, uh, you know, this story in particular, of all the stories in it, there's a richness in the um, in the characters' background, the mm-hmm. history, that it this feels so Stephen King. Yeah. Like, this feels like, earlier she's talking about the history of the family, and it's so, like, dense and layered. They actually cut a lot Do you know what this sequence. reminds me of this particular segment here, too? It, it kind of foreshadows... Uh, from Tales from the Dark Side, the movie, Stephen King's The Cat from Hell. How so? I, I don't know if it's the setting. The totally? fact that it takes it totally, definitely, most definitely is, is I think, the most. Oh, no, you're right, because there's a, it's a whole history of a story with this cat. Yes. And this is a history of the story with you know, uh, and it's, this. It, uh, it's a well to do family. Terrorist. They're in this kind of country estate and everything. And uh, you hear all the history of how. You know, people are knocked off, basically. Right. But, I mean, really, tonally, this just reminds me so much of The Cat from Hell. It's just so much better. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry I said that. Yeah, I didn't. I, hey, I, I dude, don't know why. I had no David reason to Johansson, say that. David Johansson, man. I know. I had, there's no reason for me to fucking yeah, shit Hickey. on your choice of something like... <laughs> Which and you know no, I'll tell you right now. I mean, it is 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 between the two movies. I mean, if I'm going to compare Creepshow and Tales from the Dark Side, the movie, which some people say is the unofficial Creepshow three. Um, actually, Richard Rubenstein himself says that. Okay, you know, I, definitely, I think this is the superior film. Oh yeah, but you know, I saw honestly, I probably saw Tales from the Dark Side, the movie, before I saw this. I think I saw it like around the same time. I remember seeing Tales from the Dark Side for the first time too, and that, that was on a VHS, a beat up VHS copy. Yeah. Um, this was rented from the video store for me, uh, and um, I mean, just watch it. <laughs> I just the spooky atmosphere. I actually to this day still want to have an estate so that I can have a family cemetery on it. That's that'd like, be fantastic. It reminds me of like my favorite kind of movies, like Dementia Thirteen. Mm-hmm. I am a sucker. For this, for this whole concept of like, creepy, the beast must die. Creepy, yes, <laughs> uh, dude. You, you give me a, a creepy haunted castle, monster running around a castle. I'm. It's my favorite movie. Yeah. I mean, I don't. I don't care how bad it is. Like, I, I am enamored with it. Um, truly, madly, deeply. <laughs> <laughs> 
I love the the saturation. We get the blue lighting, very, very, very stylized. Um, well, they almost kind of take on that reminiscent four color process that they use for so many comics. And yeah, the four color comics of that. St- yeah, and you know what's great is the tone is again, it's there. The moral, uh, the the EC comics were all moral comics. They always took a moral high ground. Yeah, so characters who did bad things were punished. And usually in very grotesque and horrible ways. And this this movie really takes that same exact thing and and just double down doubles down on it. In addition to turns it on its head a little bit later. We'll get to that segment. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember seeing this and being afraid. Yeah, the concept of um, Vivica Linfors falling on me in an open grave. No, of <laughs> and then having a giant grave monument. Crush my skull is like terrifying. Spoiler alert! I, and I love that Nathan's using his magic zombieism to like pull the tombstone down. Come on, Ed. What are you gonna do, buddy? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it's it. It's a noise I wouldn't expect to come out of Ed Harris's mouth. <laughs> Uh, every time he did that during the abyss, James Cameron got pissed at him. That's why I had a contentious working relationship. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> That's why? That's why. <laughs> Look at that little bobcat. Mm-hmm. A little fox. The art direction in this movie is spot on, and uh, and so is the cast. Look at this beautiful shot, dude. Hmm. Oh, my God. I, this movie is gorgeous. I don't know about you guys, but we're watching uh, the 4K restoration of this movie, um, and it is the the work the the that Michael Gornick did with his team to adjust the movie is top notch. This is like a preservation copy of this film. I want my dinner. I'm hungry. I just and I love how everybody's bitchy. It kind of reminds me of like a Michael McDowell novel in a way. It's got that kind of like um, rich bitchiness that I, I just love, but it just feels very Stephen King, you know, and everything's got a nice little twist. And in this one in particular, what a twist, literally. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, well, every uh, Father's Day, I send my dad a, 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 this image. The, to wish the, him a happy Father's Day, yeah. yes, a, a, a variation of it. It's yeah. either the 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 cake or him crawling out of the grave. Yeah, uh, anything <laughs> just to wish a nice morbid. There uh, she is. That must have hurt her nose. They got a stunt nose for that. <laughs> stunt nose. Now, this <laughs> the synth score of this movie is. Incredible, but there is actually the old Romero staple of um, canned music, library music, yeah. capital library music um, throughout the movie. And what's amazing about that choice is it sets the tone to this movie perfectly. Like you know what you're getting into as soon as you start hearing that weird '50s library horror music. You you know what's up. It brings you back to an era. And then Harrison puts this synth score on top of it. Like, right now, this is library music. Mm-hmm. But that do, 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 you know, all of that. That's John Harrison's synth. And it's just an incredible melding of 
those two styles of music. Very well done. A very talented guy, that John Harrison. Yeah, he could do it all. Yeah. So he, I said earlier, he was the assistant director on this film. Interestingly enough, because of the family thing that George Romero has, um, George Romero was a very, you know, gregarious character, larger than life character. Literally big, larger than life. He's a huge man. Big bear of a man, they always describe him as. And he was a kind of director who allowed people to talk to him on set. Oh. Um very communicative I as a director. Finally, got my cake. Uh, and there we go. <laughs> here we yeah. get these beautiful, the stylized go- gobos and everything. Oh yeah. my god, it's incredible! And this transition into the next story. Um, but Romero, as a director on sets, would uh, you know ask people what What do you want? You know, what should we do? How do we do this? And the AD's job is to tell everybody what to do. Yeah. So he went through two ADs on this movie. They both quit because they were frustrated that George Romero was undermining what they were doing. Because they were like, we talked to the crew, <gasps> not you. Oh, wait. The lonesome death of Jordy Verrill. And there he is. Stephen King himself. Did they give him stunt teeth for this? No, those are his real teeth. Okay. Um... I believe they are fixed now, yeah. but for a long time, they were not. Okay, so if you were to ask me what my favorite... Hey, Brandon, what's your favorite segment in uh, in Creepshow? The Lonesome Death of Jordy Verrill. Yeah, okay. Everybody uh, seems to pile on Stephen King's performance in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, they say that he's just ridiculous and over the top. And I he sucks. think it fits perfectly. I think that everybody who says that is either just parroting their opinion mm-hmm. or just genuinely doesn't understand performance. He is excellent in this role. He is doing things so bright. And I love Department of Meteors. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Now, is that Bingo O'Malley? I don't know. who As the doctor? Yeah. I don't know who that is, actually. I, I, I'm ashamed to admit. I know he's... Because, uh, you know, I, I, I think he was in Romero's Two Evil Eyes. Okay. Well, Romero's segment... Of Two Evil of Eyes. Two Evil yeah. Eyes, yeah. His other anthology film. I mean, the the whole... This whole episode is canted angles, these Dutch angled mm-hmm. things, and... Not a penny less than 200 bucks for that meteor, man. <laughs> I I think he's... I, I couldn't ask for a better performance. And I mean, this is a total like homage, too, to the opening sequence in, uh, in The Blob. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. Ooh, Steve, that's so gross. Um, and, you know, I would like to brag for a minute that one year for Halloween, I went as a Jordy Verrill in mid-transformation. Wasn't that this year? No, it was two years ago. Oh, okay. And nobody had any fucking idea who I was. I would have known. Yeah, I wasn't at a like a the usual um, Halloween party. It yeah. was a bunch of squares that year.
sorry, sorry for the silence. I think yeah. we're both kind of yep. like we're, taken we're, by we're watching, watching Steve. It. Well, I'm waiting for like the the best line in this entire movie. Here it comes. Where is it? <laughs> come on, dude. Come on, come on. Say it, say it, say it. Ugh. Meteor shit. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly one of the most quotable lines, man. Just meteor shit. Now, I've, again, I love the pacing of this movie. I mean, you—it's like you bring you start us off with this awesome zombie tale, you know, revenge from beyond the grave tale, uh, just like with a moldering ambulatory corpse, which mm-hmm. is an EC staple. Then you drop us into this weird kind of um, sci-fi story that is like just down home sci-fi. Uh, and it's more about the horror of the situation yeah, than and anything it's, else. I mean, it's very comedic. For sure. I mean, and again, this is all library music yep. that we're hearing. That it, it, as soon as you hear it, you know what's up. What do you think he's drinking? There oh, it is. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Same thing that we're drinking right now. Yep, we're having Ripple. <laughs> we're sitting in our Plymouth Fury drinking Ripple, um, deciding whether or not we're going to give each other a hand job. Yeah. Have you decided? Have you made a decision? Meteor shit. <laughs> hmm. Well, it's a lot of growth that's taking place. Milkweed, I think that is. My Halloween costume also had a bucket with a meteor in mm-hmm. it, and the meteor glowed as well. Hey, his fingers are green and furry. So apparently when this movie was finished, uh, the original cut of it was three hours long. Damn. Uh, At which point everybody just said, what do we do? You know, like, how do we handle this? Uh, They thought maybe they would cut a segment entirely. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. But they realized that they couldn't really do that um, and have a successful film. So they just chopped a bunch of stuff off. Uh, from each film. Yeah. Um, including some stuff from this episode in particular. I think this episode, this segment had the most stuff cut from it. I could be wrong. It might have been Father's Day. But I love the idea that his this lunkhead's imagination just yeah. is running wild. Horrible the, fantasies of what might happen. And he's just so he's it's like this is his worst case split scenario. Diopter shot right here too. Oh, it's incredible. Yeah, you don't see that a lot these days. No, that's because everything's shot on digital and it looks like shit. Well, you don't have depth of field anymore. But just like in perfect Stephen King fashion. The the stuff like that his characters think is going to happen to them, the bad stuff that's causing them to do the dumb stuff, mm. is nothing compared to what actually happens yep. to them. Is far worse, a far worse fate than even what they could imagine. And I love the moral. Like, what's the moral of this? You know, don't stick a shotgun in your mouth. <laughs> don't fucking touch a meteor. Oh right, you right, know, sorry. like that's a dumb lesson I have to learn. Wait, 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 wait. Oh, oh. Oh, no. He's got HPV on his tongue. I thought he was showing everybody his hit of acid that he took. No. 
boy, there's hey, lots of green what stuff. Hey, kind of car is and that? It's a Plymouth Fury. Hey, look, pot plants. Roll it up and smoke it. <laughs> Meteor weed. <laughs> That's how you would update this now, mm. by the way. He would roll it up and smoke mm, it yeah. and get it in his lungs. And that unibrow. <laughs> Again, I I just think, you know, the story is that he was actually directed to play it bigger and bolder yeah. and, and more uh, obnoxious. And he kind of questioned Romero on set about it, just thinking, like, I'm going to look like a fucking idiot. Yep. And Romero was, that was exactly right. Romero was like, yep. <laughs> you are yep Jordy Barrel you lunkhead look at all this just the green wash that they've got everything I mean, the theatricality in the staging of these shots as well because I mean this is not shit that's done in post this is all done in camera on set they said that um, because of the 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 uh, the the saturation, the colors, the vivid colors of this movie, the reds, the greens, the blues, that when they would send the film to the lab... Oh, they go through and correct the film? The lab technicians uh, would try to color correct it to like make it yeah. look normal again. And they'd be like, please stop. <laughs> we did this on purpose. But proof that, you know, this wasn't done that yeah. often. You know, it was a, a very strange thing. And now, actually, interestingly, uh, they... Ooh, I, screwdriver. I don't remember if it was this one. I forget what the first movie they by the way this is a, a real life thing that Stephen King used to do <laughs> was actually stir yeah. his... that see, that's how he wrote Cujo what mm. what just happened now is how he wrote Cujo um, apparently they whatever the, I cannot recall what the first segment was that they filmed for the of production for this movie but they filmed it two ways they filmed it with the high saturation mm-hmm. and then they also filmed it like standard like yeah. like a typical kind of movie because they were concerned that it would be a little too weird people would like the the money guys would be like what the fuck and it turns out they started seeing the dailies and they were immediately the money guys everybody was like yes we get it this is awesome right on isn't it nice when the money guys actually get it yeah when does that ever happen you know like never never i guess marvel kind of gets it these days yeah There's a matte painting. Was it? I didn't. I missed it. Yep. Sorry. I missed it. <laughs> no, dude. It wasn't a dream. You <laughs> fuck. I, and I also I, uh, applaud Stephen King for going with his main accent on this one, too. Um, one of those things that is rarely done in Stephen King adaptations. Yeah. Which blows my mind because his characters are all described with their thick yeah, mainers and fucking none of them ever have the accent. So I'm very happy to man. see. And the funny part is they didn't have to put any kind of makeup on Stephen <laughs> King here. They just dyed his chest hair green. <laughs> that is his actual chest hair. <laughs> and back here. And back here. Listen, I love that music. This that that warbling. Yeah. 
what is that? What, what, what instrument is that? That it's like a theremin, oh. but I don't think it's actually a theremin. I think it's like an Owens Martino or something, something like, like that. that, right? But yeah, I, I think it's Bingo O'Malley, and he plays all the other characters in this. He in plays this, in this. He episode, plays the yeah. professor. He plays the doctor, and then he plays Jory's father. Yep. This music that that warbling, you know, spooky ethereal note. You know what it reminds me of? The real Ghostbusters cartoon score. Oh, they use it a lot in there. Oh my god. And again, you know what you're getting into. Yeah. Like you just know um what what the tone is supposed to be. It's 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 ingenious. Evocative. So the other thing about this movie is these were all sets. This is the first time Romero, who is very much a uh, location guy, yeah, his that's kind of how he shoots his stuff. You know, this is the first time glitter on the water. He was ever actually able to build sets for a movie, and I can they they were just beside themselves, just going wow, the amount of control that we have, yeah. Um, and they did an excellent job. I mean, these sets look lived in; they look wonderful. They're beautifully realized sets. Yeah. Excellent art direction, as you had said before. Yep. Thank you, Cletus Anderson. I believe he has uh, left this world. Um, his wife, Barbara, is the costume designer. She's still with us uh, as of this recording. Um, but the work lives on. And uh, I guess that's the important thing. Mm-hmm. I will tell you the ending of this particular segment out of all five of them when i saw this movie for the first time really stuck with me yeah it's It's, pretty depressing actually really fucking dark this is super super amusing all around and then all of a sudden you come to this (sighs) and in slow-mo too just this once i you know this is It's I love the sparkles for that come from the gun that lightens it a little bit. But like the idea again, it's so Stephen King, right? Mm-hmm. Because at this era of Stephen King's work in particular, he f- loved to do that to you, the audience. It, it's just like you, you, it's silly or goofy. You love this audience or this character, and then their end is brutal, and it's and kind of day of the Triffids here. Too. I know, I love it. And Castle Rock, five yeah. miles down the road. Okay, this stuff th- of the comic book. Oh, the little uh, the little Cinderway. Well, up. the the animating of the comic it's hand animated, stop motion animation to get that thing to to the, those pages to move. Mm-hmm. Painstaking the amount of work that went into these animated transitions. By the way, the art of those interior comic book pages mm-hmm. is Jack Kamen. Oh yeah, who is a. Uh, EC Comics uh, artist and yeah. uh, also Mad Magazine. Brilliant, brilliant illustrator. Hey, look, it's Sam Malone. Who? Sam Malone. Oh, look, it's Frank Drebin. Who? Frank <laughs> Drebin. Uh, can't you think Ted Danza could bench press 300 pounds? I don't know. He's got some nice tits. <laughs> So Ted Danson had only been in a couple of things prior to this. This is 
He had not hit with Cheers yet. Nope. He was still a, an actor who died in every movie he was in. Yeah. <laughs> Including this one. And Leslie Nielsen um, had just done Airplane. Yeah. When he did this movie. So, but his comedy days were still ahead of him. And he was... I mean, he had already done Police Squad at this point, though. I don't know, man. This is 82. I don't think so. No, I think Police Squad was like 79, 80. The, the TV show, Police Squad. It was... A- yeah, it w- that was after Airplane. Was it after Airplane? Yeah. Yeah. I really feel like that was around like 82 or 83. Look at that VCR. But that thing was probably like eight, nine hundred bucks right there. Maybe actually a little more than that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but Leslie Nielsen was still known for these, you know, kind of. Well, he was a dramatic actor. Yeah. He, for, yeah. Those stoic roles. I, yeah. I think the most outrageous role at this point he'd ever played was probably. But Forbidden Planet? No. Uh, Day of the Animal. Yeah. Uh, or Animals as the like fucking ad agency head like alpha male who <laughs> rips his shirt off and goes hand-to-hand combat with a uh with a giant bear yeah. in the fucking rain in the mountains you might want to stop everything and go rent day of the animals <laughs> just for that moment alone ted danson's chest hair rivals the chest hair of stephen king in this movie uh, yes post growth of meteor shit (laughs) but Chris if you were to ask me what my favorite segment of creep show is yeah I was wondering because I mean we've been through two segments and really I haven't gotten a a good answer out of it but like what is your favorite segment in creep show I think it's probably something to tide you over yeah yeah okay this segment is uh, this is the one by the way that is actually there were Four editors that worked on this movie to get this thing done as fast as possible. Well, yeah, Romero was one of them. Uh, This is the one that he did. Pasquale Buba was another one. Was he? Okay. Which, I mean, he had worked as an editor on Dawn of the Dead. Okay. He was also the uh, the guy in the sombrero that goes and puts his arm (laughs) in the blood pressure cuff. In Dawn, yeah. Yeah. In the middle of a zombie attack. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then this episode, did I just say that, was edited... This segment was edited by Romero himself. Well, if anything, you know, I think that Romero was an interesting writer. I think he was a great visionary director, but really, I think where he excelled was his skill as an editor. And it really shows in this episode. Romero can cut things together like nobody. There's a wonderful um, sequence toward the end of this You know where this was shot, right? Jersey Shore. Yeah. This is so this is one of the very few places that they went to an actual location. Um at least this this sequence was Jersey Shore. Weren't there some pickup shots that they did do in Florida? I can't imagine they would have. Why would they have gone from Pittsburgh all the way down to Florida? Because at that point Romero was kind of moving back and forth between Florida and and Pittsburgh. Okay, I could see it. Now that was the thing. We didn't we we were talking about how he formed Laurel and um, had a three-picture contract with them. Night Riders was the first to go. Creepshow was next, and uh, they were. Uh, and then the third was obviously Day of the Dead, um, mm-hmm. and Tales from the Dark Side in Intermediary. The, too. But at that point, Romero had parted ways with Laurel. 
um, he was still doing work with them mm-hmm. out of loyalty, but he was out of it. And they, uh, the same thing happened with Creepshow too. Um, you know, he didn't direct it. He just ended up writing it instead. Yeah. Leslie Nielsen's fucking sinister in this. He's I great. Mean, he plays such a, a, just a cold, calculating villain in this. He's so good. Yeah. And Ted Danson is really plays it in the moment. Like, I love his, like, like, what? It's like he's dealing with Larry David pointing a gun at him. You yeah. know, he's just kind of, like, beside himself the whole time. He's just like, I can't believe this is actually happening to me. He actually takes the absurdity of it and is like, I'll run with it. Let's just do this real. For the record, I would wear that sweater that uh, Leslie Nielsen's wearing right now. Definitely. Again, this is such a Stephen King story. Like, it reminds me of like... uh, Cat's uh, Eye. Yeah, The Wedge. Yeah. Right? Or you just this guy's got his gonna get his uh you've got one over on this on the the protagonist. Well, yeah, if it's you will. it's it's another kind of tale of infidelity here. Where oh, I, I've caught you banging my wife, and now I'm gonna make you go through some sort of just overly ostentatious and crazy plot in order to wreak my revenge. Which actually, I think of Cat's Eye, too. The Ledge, you know, was, I mean, aside from being a cool short story, uh, you know, it's just, it's an excellent, excellent segment out of that anthology film, too. Quitters Incorporated, too. Now, Romero uh, actually said he did not like the term anthology film to be used to describe this movie. He actually called this a comic book movie. I think our our idea of what a comic book movie is now is a little bit yeah it's different changed. than 1982, but I I can't blame him his 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 thinking is by the way this technique of that bucket mm-hmm. at the tide line as an editing technique is brilliant because it shows it, you'll as it goes on time passage it's excellent it's such an excellent idea to get the coverage of that I love it. Um, very, it's, it's very like graphic, like in this presentation, meaning like very much like a comic book, um, just visual using the visual to tell mm. that. What is this necklace, this medallion that, that Leslie Nielsen is wearing? I mean, it's like, it's so predominant in this, you know, you can see it almost from the get go when he comes on screen. And I think later on too, when he goes back to his house and he's taking the shower, he's still wearing that medallion. Doesn't it look like vaguely Egyptian kind of, I mean, it's like this, this bar that's got like almost like angels wings and stuff on it or something. Yeah. I wonder like, I wonder what it is. I yeah. mean, I can't knowing Romero, knowing his attention to detail, I can't imagine that it was anything less than a decision that was made, yeah. you know, like as to what it means, like what is it? Look how visually interesting that shot is too. You've got the crab in the foreground, dance in the midground and then the shovel in the background. Blue crab, too. Mmm, tasty. (laughs) 
Whoa. <laughs> I think that's legitimate fear in Danson's I'm eyes sure. right there, that but crab. I just always imagined that there was like somebody right off camera ready to fucking grab that thing just yeah. in case. Hey, look, it's Galen Ross. All right. The beautiful Galen Ross. Um, obviously, the star of Dawn of the Dead. Mm-hmm. And uh, what's the other movie that she was in? It was a slasher movie. What was that? Oh, my God. Is it The Slayer? No. Ah, crap. Holy fuck. You had to ask me this right now. See? Frightmare? No. No. Okay, well... <clears throat> Those were the only three things that she really did. Now she's a... Well, I don't know if she's retired now, but she ended up becoming a very uh, well-renowned, respected uh, documentary filmmaker. Mm -hmm. Just like Romero's wife. Christine, Mm -hmm. who also gets a cameo in this film. Yep. Has beleaguered, at this point in time, uh, his assistant. Tireless assistant. uh, Working for him. And honestly, this is the really only time you can see Galen Ross's face in this entire sequence. I guess that's probably the stuff that was edited out when they were kind of cutting this down because you see her here on the TV monitor and then you see her in the full makeup at the end of the segment. But yeah. this is all that you actually can tell that it's Galen Ross. It's more like a cameo, although she does get prominent billing in the yeah. opening credits. This is such a such an excellent like evil villain revenge scheme too. Mm-hmm. I like it. Just feels so fifty, so old school. You know, like so mean. Bury a guy up to his fucking neck and let the tide come in. Like it's great. That jacket is not, or that sweater is not out of style today. No. By the way, that thing is totally relevant. He he's like so in the moment. It's great. It's that Ted that Ted Danson never gonna overplay it. He always kind of underacts, mm-hmm. but like it's still super believable. You get that Camp Town races. Is the score there? Mm-hmm. God, as an actor, I would hate this. All that friggin' sand in my face and mouth. <laughs> now, this is where uh, you really get to see Romero's uh, editing skills come into play. Um, there goes that bucket. Yep. The look on his face of just like the realization what that this is it for him. Fuck. Oh, I love it. It's so good. Yeah.
<laughs> and there it goes, floating out to sea. Here's one of my favorite parts of the score and mm-hmm. the way it's edited in time. You get to learn a little bit about Leslie's character. Get that old Camp Town races in there. Now, Chris, where does um, this movie rank for you as far as anthology films go? To to use the term that Romero was not a big fan of, probably at the very top. Yeah, I I, I really I mean there there's a lot of anthology. I, I'm a big fan of the anthology film, um, but this movie is an archetype. I mean, I think it gives you everything that you could possibly want out of a great anthology film. Yeah, it's hard to beat. Yeah. Everything I mean, that you've got top-notch actors. Yep. You've got top-notch writing, top-notch directing, editing, cinematography, art direction, scenic design. The music is perfect. I mean, everything is so harmonious. Yeah. In this movie, and that's I think why it resonates too. I still feel that despite the sequel and the 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 other sequel and then the TV series uh, and that it's not, I just don't hear a whole lot of people talking about this movie that often. I, I Maybe I'm missing it, but like, I just, I think people treat it as a trifle. Yeah. I think that's what it is. Uh, you know, everybody that I know that has seen Creepshow, or if you make mention of Creepshow, everybody loves it. Yeah. Like my wife, you know, she's not a huge horror aficionado. She... You know, indulges me and watches a lot of stuff, but she loves Creepshow. Nice. She absolutely loves Creepshow. Nice. And it's probably because it's just such a great movie altogether. I mean, not just a great horror film, not just a great anthology. It is just a, a, a well-crafted, excellent piece of filmmaking. And very unique. Again, mm-hmm. first of its kind as far as style goes and everything that has come since here is, comes the curse. Look at that. That's quick turn to the camera. Very actually kind of a scary look, yeah. too. I remember as a kid that that actually really yeah. frightened me. Um, even and I also love there we go. There comes the, oh, the fish tank scene. That's great. But the um, let again, Leslie Nielsen's performance in this. As he realizes, or as he's saying, like, you're going to have to hold your breath. He still has this look of, like, doubt. You know, like, mm-hmm. I don't know if he's playing it as guilt or, like, he knows something bad's going to happen. But th- th- this whole rest of the scene, or of sequ- segment, he plays it, that note, just like, what? What's up? And as a visual medium, too. I mean, all the things that are told just in the image. No dialogue. That's the thing, man. Just the look on Leslie Nielsen's face. Tells you everything you need to know, you know? You you can... You know, we're, we're watching this movie right now with the audio, you know, well hanging from the speakers of the density driving uh, speakers outside of our Plymouth Fury, but um, the audio is a little low. And it even then, it's still 
effectively gets the point across. Yeah. I love that soprano voice singing. That's, again, library music. Mm-hmm. With that synth overlay. And watching this, I almost forget that Leslie Nielsen's Canadian. Almost. That's why he's so weird looking. Yeah. <laughs> I I think I will take this moment, this time to apologize to any of our Canadian friends for some earlier comments that were made. <laughs> I think it's all good natured ribbing considering the source. Well, the question, the fact of the matter is, yeah, Canadians are weird looking. And look at that jogging suit. Now, oh, you, you have yeah. one exactly like that, don't you? Uh, I have two or three, actually, <laughs> like in, in a variety of colors. Can I have one? Um, yeah. Yes. Yeah, you could. I don't know. I mean, it, it might be, you know, like little high water marks on there because, like, you know, you are a tad taller than I am. What do you think those tapes are? Uh, him banging galen ross well because you know i know knowing stephen king that is a something that was written into the script yeah you know like p- pretending like this is a, a short story from night shift which yeah. this totally fits in mm-hmm. uh you know that that's a segment where like this guy my my guess is that he probably got his money from blackmailing people? No, no, no. Through electronics. Yeah. Like he, like he's got all he's got the, the TV top line. and the cable. And, yeah. yeah. The closed circuit cameras around his house. Yeah. And the multi monitor wall and and once again that damned you know medallion is so prevalent here. Ooh, shadow. Wait a second. Is that Raboutine? <laughs> There's fog. I see fog. legitimately spooky though yeah I, I mean but here we go with that all again that library music is just incredible no need to get jumpy so now he's taking that thing off so it's like some kind of you know I, look hey if any of you guys know what it is call our hotline and let us know mm-hmm. <laughs> right now it's uh the number is uh 976 evil and if Stephen Jeffries answers the phone, don't mention the uh, gay porn that he made, because he will hang up on you. <laughs> oh, you're so cool, Brandon. <laughs> oh, and look, we have a lionfish, which don't. played very predominantly in The Naked Gun. It did? Yes. The whole sequence of, of him in uh, Ricardo Montalban's office I don't and remember. the lionfish. I don't remember. Oh, uh, yeah. I haven't seen that movie in a very long time. But if you've ever wanted to see uh, Leslie Nielsen in the shower, this is the movie for you. Yeah. Again, back to the whole concept. Like, the, you know, the R rating on this movie. That fireplace, man. <sighs> I would love it. Yeah, I, you know, I'm a weirdo in that I really like this this kind of modernist architecture. Yeah, yeah, me too. Me too. It's uh, kind of an obsession of mine. I really feel that the worst thing to happen to uh, architectural design in the last uh, thirty years is the removal of conversation pits from yeah. living rooms. 
You know, what the yeah. fuck? Why Why would you do that? Why would you get rid of that? You know why? Well, because it's all social media now. People yeah, don't actually talks. talk anymore. Exactly. Look at these Leslie Nielsen tits. Ooh. Mm. Oh, yeah. Rub them. Rub them. Rub them. Yeah. Actually, we're going to get a full frontal <laughs> Leslie Nielsen scene here in just a second. Yeah, the deleted scene is his wang <laughs> flopping around. Weird. Hog leg. Hog leg. This is why he was so confident playing the leading man in serious film and also playing comedic roles. Because when you have a hog leg like that, you can do anything. But... <laughs> Would you again? Th- this movie, these sets are built. When I see things like those doors, with the 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 design on the doors that like trim, that's like like the detail of all of the stuff in this is just mind blowing to me. It's it's so well done. That look at yeah. that that architecture. But okay, Nielsen again, the commitment to the terror. There's a bit where he like, and especially when he starts to lose his mind. When he tries, he's like, he could go to unlock the door, and he like just gives up because his he's just snapped. Yep, it's such a good performance from an an incredible actor. Show the foot of the door underneath the door. Yep, <gasps> a nice green wash. Ah. Oh. His look of just <laughs> complete, like, wait a minute. Well, yeah, this, this, this is a joke, right? I'm, I got the gun. Oh. Huh? And the bullet doesn't make any difference. The realization on his face right now. That's great. Wait a second. I mean, it is the transition from overconfidence to fear. It's a great performance. And then to a, complete insanity. Yeah. <laughs> it's so awesome. <sighs> so in this sequence right here, uh, apparently Dead Tanson's arm was supposed to get caught in the door, uh-huh. get ripped off, fall on the ground, and start to crawl around and um, attack Leslie Nielsen. They filmed it, but they cut it hmm. because it just it wasn't working yeah. because they were much <gasps> happier with are. that ending. Yeah. Um, and the animation of the severed arm was done by Rick Catazone, who ended up doing the animated arm for Evil Dead 2. So things worked out just fine for I him. I guess so. <laughs> yeah. He's absolutely insane. Bonkers. Fucking bonkers. And look at that. The green, blue, and red. Oh, my God. I love it. this beach scene. I love it. A long time. (laughs) He's absolutely insane. And then all of a sudden the water comes in and that (laughs) doubt. Oh. I just really that is that is a commit. I mean, I would even go as far to say that that could be worthy of an award of some <laughs> sort there, man. That is just a fantastic performance. He's so good. Ah, 
Hey, Brandon. Yeah. In Creep Show, what's your favorite segment? I think I would have to say my favorite segment is the crate. Yeah? Yeah. This is actually also the longest segment of the film. Yeah. Um, I believe it clocks in around 38 minutes. Um, and, you know, originally... Excuse me. Originally, uh, this this segment came before, or immediately after Jordy Verrill. Yeah. And they... They rearranged it. They put something to tide you over for pacing reasons, which, again, I'm I think like, it was a good choice. Brilliant choice. Uh, it just gets right back to it. The, the pacing in this movie is absolutely incredible. And this, the late, great Hal Holbrook, who we lost just a few weeks ago. Was it just weeks? Just a few weeks ago, yeah. There, speaking of production design, there's Cletus Anderson yep. right there. That's the art director of the film. And there's Christine Romero. That's right. And, of course, Fritz Weaver over here. And, yep, the late Al great Holbrook. And Adrian Barbos. Adrian's Barbos. <laughs> Why don't you tell him to call you Billy? Such a great... Uh, what is she? What what do you call her in this story, in this this archetype? A lush. <laughs> Again. She's a, yeah. She's just such a Stephen she's King. She's a loudmouth, you know. Tasteless, classless. Oh, it's so good. Ballbuster. Yeah, the shrewish, shrewish wife. I don't know. God, look at her. And I love how everybody's just like, what the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) It's like even Fritz Weaver's like, I'm going to get out of this conversation. Is this the... Yeah, she's just obnoxious. Oh, they they cut it. Whoever that okay. So the line is originally she so the, whoever that etiquette crotch is, mm-hmm. but the line was obviously whoever that etiquette cunt is. Yeah, and they also cut. There's a that woman that she's talking to like does this amazing reaction to that where she's just like oh, oh, like so offended and storms away. I wish that they kept that in. Maybe it's a little over the top, but or like too much. But it's I think it's great. Yeah. So this uh, this sequence again. This is another one that this is a location that mm-hmm. they filmed at this mansion, um, which is supposed to be like on some college campus, right? And then when we get to the actual school, that was shot at Carnegie Mellon University. Until they go downstairs, which yeah. is then it becomes set. a set. This is a set, yeah, right here. And again, 
excellently executed set. Do you recognize this actor? I don't recall his name. I mean, there's a few other things. I think he played a cop and a couple other things. Sure. Now, not all of these... So the, these are mostly original stories written for this movie, mm-hmm. but two of them are based on Stephen King stories. Uh, the Jordy Verrill is mm-hmm. based on a short story called Weeds. And then um, this is a story, The Crate. I have not read either of them. I was going to say, what collection are these? They are not collections? collected. There, I, I, well, I could be wrong, but I don't believe that they are collected. Fantasy moment. <laughs> and sidelight, look at that. You get yep, the wash on You get on the red him. wash. And that is a textbook Tom Savini headshot. Oh. Huh. <laughs> So, again, we get that playfulness, you know, like, that takes the the graphic horror Mm. of what just happened and makes it palatable. High Fidelity stole this, totally. That sequence when Tim Robbins Mm. comes in and he just has those fantasies about... Killing him. Killing him. (laughs) But, um... Now, Chris, you're a Stephen King fan. I am. I'm a Stephen King fan. Mm-hmm. Are you like me in that you feel that he, while his novels are incredible, some of them are excellent, great, he excels in his short stories? To put it succinctly, I was always a bigger fan of Stephen King's short stories than I was of his novels. Not to knock the novels. I, I, I love them. But just the short story as as a format... Uh, is my favorite. I, I prefer that. And you know, it's uh, you, and you know, it's basically a dying format. Yeah. I mean, there's very little, um, a, you know, there there are no more magazines. There mm. there are very precious few magazines that publish short stories. At the time, you know, Stephen King's career started in these these short story magazines. You know, and, and specifically these men's magazines. Mm-hmm. Uh, things like Adam and I don't know Swank, which Argosy. Was Argus. <laughs> well, Argosy. Uh, did he ever go to print publish an Argosy? I think that there were a few of them. Yeah. Um. And and Harper's, you know. Yeah, he, that's where he got his start doing these, and they, they, these things are all defunct. You know, in the eighties, there's just this amazing groundswell of uh, this resurgence surge of yeah. of writing you get these amazing short stories ted klein brings out twilight zone magazine mm-hmm. um which i bought i picked up with the first issue of at a garage sale for 25 cents Man. flawless perfect condition I, I i couldn't believe my luck yeah um you know you get you got authors like stephen king uh joe lansdale th- this whole era that is impossible to happen. It cannot happen again. It will never happen again. You know? Like, it just won't. In in, in that particular way, yes. I, I don't want to say that 
we won't see a resurgence in short stories. Um, Forever the optimist. I, well, yeah, I guess so. And it's just because once again, it's it's probably my favorite my favorite medium. You know, it's like my when I tell a story, short stories the way for me to go. That's right. I mean, I've got tons of short stories just sitting around. Probably because I'm just, you know, either a lazy... Well, no, I'm definitely a lazy son of a bitch. Um, but, you know, as far as my own writing goes, I just... I love the succinctness of it. I love yeah. being able to kind of, you know, get in, accomplish something, and get out, and then move on to the next one. And, you know, picking God, up a collection... that sounds like my college years. Picking up a collection of, 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 of short stories is much like this movie, you know? It's it's an omnibus. It's it's a, you know, an anthology portmanteau yes precisely now um what is your favorite stephen king uh collection of short stories he's he's published several books yeah most recently probably night shift yeah probably night shift night shift has all the classics can you name some of them right there oh god trucks uh graveyard battleground graveyard shift the jaunt nope johnson's skeleton crew yeah okay well, once again, they kind of run together for me. Well, so. So, so I always look at Night Quitters Sh- Incorporated. Yeah. The Ledge. Yeah. Oh, wait. W- wait a minute. One of those, I think, is in Skeleton Crew. Uh, I think Quitters Night in- Surf. Night Surf is, that's right. Uh, I Am the Doorway. Yeah. Um, the Mangler. Uh, here There Be Tigers. Nope. That's in Skeleton Crew. That's in Crew? Skeleton Crew, too. Damn. So here, here's the way to remember it. Uh Night shift is the high concept stories, like um, the uh, uh, yeah, the more high concept. Skeleton crew is like the monster stuff. Yeah. There's like it's more like crazy monsters, um, like the mist. Yeah. Uh, both collections I think are excellent, but Skeleton Crew has some of his more experimental. It's got like the poetry and yeah. some of that kind of crap. And even throw like, kind of like the Bachman books. Although those, a lot of those are novellas and everything too, you know. But that's a collection that I enjoy. Yeah. Um, Could you? Oh, we, we we skipped two. Jerusalem's Lot and One for the Road yeah. are both in Night Shift. Yeah. Could you pick a favorite Stephen King short story? Probably Battleground. Yes, dude. Battleground is excellent. That's the one about uh, a guy, a, a hitman, mm-hmm. who gets a special delivery at his hotel. Uh, from the guy he's supposed to whack who happens to own a toy company. And they are uh, little army men that uh, murder him. Uh, and it's great. And, and of course, the ending to that story is just phenomenal. And it was actually made into a episode of a short-lived Nightmares and Dreamscapes anthology series for, I don't know, like TNT yeah. or something or other. Was that Bill Sadler was in that? or I'm blanking on who it was. No, it was... Uh, uh, close William Hurt it was William Hurt William Hurt and it's mm-hmm. it's entirely dialogue free yeah which is pretty awesome to think that they mm-hmm. did that visual medium yep look at those old fucking clove nails those old yeah those the Jesus killers <laughs> <laughs> Julia Carpenter you think that's a little in joke Yes, I think it is. For uh, the eagle-eyed viewers uh, that listen to our show, um, this crate actually makes another appearance in uh, Jason Goes to Hell, The Final Friday. It's in the uh, basement of the Voorhees estate Mm. uh, home. Bizarre. Bizarre. 
especially considering where it ends up at the end of this story. But well, here we go. Yeah, the custodian's about to reach into the crate. That Wait. little chittering. It's a mogwai. What's incredible is, as a kid, again, when I saw this movie at our slumber party, I remember thinking, and not in a like horrified way, but I remember thinking how violent the sequence was. Um, I rem- In my mind, I recall blood just pouring oozing splattering and well the fact too that they've got this massive red wash and if you know if you know anything about theatrical lighting too you don't want to have a red wash when you're trying to do a blood effect because what does it do to the blood cancels it out yep and there you see so there's blood pouring down this guy's arm but you really can't see it and why is that because it's in a red wash Yeah. again it's just it's like it's handled so there it goes it looks but like water it doesn't it's not offensive and horrifying i think as a kid you see far but worse you get a full-on shot of fluffy's head right there and this was the first time that tom savini had ever done animatronics that's right and also now tom savini is we should let's talk about tom savini a little bit because sure. we haven't there that now okay yes that is violent but it's it's just it's not well you know blood and i think nature has created blood like this because of the color and you know the very nature of 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 what blood is we as living beings and particularly human beings are conditioned to when we see that red you know, panic sets in. I mean, you know, it lets you know that there is something wrong. I mean, it is like that stop sign. There's a reason why stop signs yeah. are red, too. Um, and I, I think by, you know, putting that red light on there, it, it does. It kind of it desensitizes, you know, de-escalates that, that warning signal that blood naturally is. And it makes it a lot more palatable and easier to stomach. Yeah. Um so yeah, let's let's, so talk, let's about talk about Tom Savini a bit. You know, um, obviously, got to start through Romero. Sure. As we all know, we could run the history of of Savini a little bit. He was supposed to do the makeup effects for uh, Night of the Living Dead. Yeah, but this little thing called Vietnam got in the way, and uh, instead he went over to Vietnam to be a combat photographer. Uh, at which point, you know, he was able to um <laughs> photograph victims of uh, this this the atrocities that were committed overseas and that informed his uh his art from then on out and well yeah, i think savini himself says he goes if i'm creating stuff and it doesn't look and more importantly make me feel the way that i felt when i saw the real thing in vietnam it's not good enough so savini really was known for a long time, much to his chagrin as the king of splatter, you know, the he godfather of gore. Yeah. And, and while I, you know, I understand his, his issue with that phrasing, because it does seem to kind of downplay the skill that was involved. He, Savini, what he really excelled at was being a magician, mm-hmm. uh, in, in the most literal of senses, the art of misdirection. Yeah. and, his effects are ingenious in their simplicity uh and also 
the 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 visceral quality of them is very real. Now here we get the super red blood. <laughs> And it should be because, but it's you know, only kind of an, an indicator well, it's of splattered. what has happened. It's, it's it's all over the place, and it makes sense. It, but you can't see the monster. It's just it's the aftermath. It's not guts pour, hanging everywhere. It's it's a little more subtle than that. I wouldn't really call this movie subtle, but but so the thing about Savini is he kind of took you know uh, uh, umbrage to that description. Sure. And um, well, there's so much more to what he was capable of doing. And I mean, this movie, I think, really kind of highlights that in addition to just the the blood and splatter effects, though, you know, there's there's creature creation in this for the first time in his career. And, you know, he actually I don't know if he turned down William Friedkin of all people offered him a chance to direct a feature film. Uh, And uh, off the top of my head, I cannot recall the name of it. Um, and he turned it down out of his loyalty to Romero to do the effects for this movie. Yeah. Which is kind of mind-blowing to think about. Uh, and I think Savini has gone on the record to state that his favorite of all of his creations is Fluffy. Yeah. Um, interestingly enough, uh, a lot of the sculpting of, of Fluffy was done by somebody else. Yeah. Not Tom Savini. Uh, Tom Savini came in to do texture. There were several drawings uh, that were designed for Fluffy. I believe he was designed to be some kind of six-armed monster, according to Stephen King's description of him. Something kind of more alien than monstrous. Um, And then Savini did this kind of wolf-like design uh, that works really well. Yeah. I mean, I'd rather see some kind of creature like that in a box than some like weird six-armed alien. Eh, You know? Well, there's this sort of like atavistic fear that you get from looking at Fluffy. Sure. And there's also, I guess, you know, the logical extrapolation as to what this creature could be. You know, this is a crate that's been underneath this staircase at this university for 150 years. <laughs> it was from an Antarctic expedition in 1834. And we all know nothing good ever happens in Antarctica exactly. for expeditions. But, you know, this thing, it, it looks like a primate, but it's, you know, covered in fur. Oh, wait a second. Oh, there's And then this is excellent. This is very... Th- talk, yeah. Here's where it get a little visceral. Yeah. And right across the face, too. Oh, Fluffy is pissed. Oh, God. That's awesome. That's a good one. That is probably the most outright violent moment of the in film. In this entire movie, yeah. Not, you know, to discount the grossness of what happens at the climax of the movie, uh, but that is probably the most outright horrific. Oh, we earlier we were talking about the moral concept of EC Comics and, and these stories in general. Mm-hmm. This is the one that does... turns it around a little bit. Yeah. This is about a guy... Well, most of the things are about a guy who plots to kill his wife. Yeah, he's henpecked. I mean, this boy, but, you know, here's the other thing, too, is that everybody 
is basically rooting for him because we know what a despicable character Adrian Barbeau as his wife is. Yes. And we're all just, I mean, just like in his little fantasy sequence where he shoots her in the head at the cocktail party, everybody kind of claps after he kills her. Yeah, we're all primed to to be him, you know, we all relate, exactly. But, you know, the other thing, Fritz, Fritz Weaver playing... His batshit insanity is incredible. He, <laughs> well, I mean, you've got some fantastic fucking actors here. I mean, Fritz Weaver, he had a great film career, but really, I think some of his best work was definitely on stage. Like what? King Lear, man. I mean, Fritz Weaver's King Lear was probably one of the consummate King Lears. The guy who's just a fantastic Shakespearean actor. You know, classically trained and just had a wonderful, miraculous stage career. And I mean, I th- I, I try to Same think with it's Hal like, Holbrook. It w- definitely, most definitely. But I mean, I sit here and I think about it. What compels Hal Holbrook and Fritz Weaver to be in a movie like this? Well, from an acting perspective, Chris, and you're an actor. Yeah. Um, what would compel you to want to do it if you're playing King Lear? Why not? What? Well, uh, first and foremost, and I, I think I can kind of see this just in, in their yeah. performances, these guys are having fun. I mean, it's meaty stuff yeah. for them. Yeah, absolutely. They're getting a chance to act. Yes. And that's all any actor I mean, really wants the, to do, right? You know, there's a certain level of histrionics, I guess, that are kind of happening in, in these performances. But, you know, it, it is just kind of a, a, a fun, you know, it's a snippet. You know, it's it's a small little thing. It's not the same type of commitment that you would have to doing a full length feature right. because each of these actors is participating in a much smaller segment. Yeah, they're on set for like this. Probably this one. They're you know they're maybe what ten days of shooting. Maybe maybe maybe. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is. It's very very meaty stuff. They're they're allowed to go to these just crazy places. You know, the, the sheer energy within the storytelling you know the stylistic flourish that you have here from from the writing of stephen king and just the way that romero does it hey by the way and look at that ashtray. ashtray yeah it's the one that uh nathan grantham was that's brained awesome. by bedelia now wait it isn't actually it's in all five stories i believe it's in yeah. every story i for neglected to to mention that earlier here we are story four Let's just start over and do it over. Yeah, that's it. Okay. Everybody stop listening. Okay. So Brandon's <laughs> going to say three, two. I, um, I, I don't know. I'm just like on cloud nine right now. Like I love this movie so much. Yeah. It's so much fun to, to watch it with other people. Um, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm very happy to be watching it at the density drive-in, of course. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Thank you, Hal Holbrook. <laughs> Obviously, Hal Holbrook was probably most famous, bizarrely, in, in this modern age for playing Mark Twain. Mark Twain Tonight, and which y- the original for the television version of that, which he also did the stage show. Yeah. But, uh, well, that's what I mean. The sta- I think you, the stage performance yeah. is what he was most famous for. Um, and a makeup that was originally designed by? I want to say Stan Winston. No, Dick, Dick Smith. Dick. Oh, oh my God. Duh. I guess I was thinking of uh, Cicely Tyson for the Stan Winston thing. Oh, uh, the Diary of Miss Jane Pittman. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. 
Yeah, Dick Smith, duh. Yeah. Stan Winston didn't do that, though. I thought that was Dick Smith as well. Little big man and... Well, then what's the... Oh, gargoyles. There you go. (laughs) Yep. Bernie Casey. So this is an era, again, back to Tom Savini, uh, that was his... I mean, he was in full force at this point in time. He had done, um, obviously, Dawn of the Dead, put him on the map. Friday the 13th is what made him a star. That was two years prior to this. Mm -hmm. At this point, his name was uh, now being listed on movie posters to help sell the film. Yeah. Including... Um, an Italian film by, uh, I believe, Scavellini. Wait, is that right? Um, called Nightmare, which is an axe murder movie. Really, really entertaining um, that claimed Tom Savini did the makeup effects for. He did consult, uh, but he did not complete his effects, and they put his name on the poster. He eventually had to sue to have it removed. Yeah. Um, but that's where he was at this stage in his career. Still working to, in my opinion, his greatest work, but do you, would you agree with me on that? I'm sorry. His greatest, his greatest, his, Tom Savini's magnum opus as a, as a makeup artist, special effects artist. That this film is no. his magnum? I still think Day of the Dead That's is right. probably his best work. I'm yeah. with you 100%. I, he, working up to it. And unfortunately, there's a few things, you know, within that movie that could have been shot a little bit differently most importantly that that first shot yeah unfortunately dr tongue man you know that being backlit you just you can't see the detail it is kind of a strange choice uh for somebody who is such a uh visualist filmmaker like romero to kind of do that that shot um <laughs> so this is Adrian Barbeau, 1982. This is post Swamp Thing. Yes. So she. Had, so she has the perm. Yeah, she has the perm. Um, she was married to John Carpenter at this point, right? I think so. I believe so because yeah. this would have been right after. Interestingly enough, right after the Fog, starring Adrian Barbeau and Hal Holbrook. Yeah. K-A-B, Antonio Bay. Whoa, did Tommy Lee Wallace just walk in here or what? (laughs) Her drunken cackling. She's great. I don't know. It's funny. Like, if you look at Adrian Barbo's career, there's a certain period kind of in the middle where it's just... I don't know. I, I just... I have... I mean, maybe it's just because the roles that she plays and she plays them so well that it's like, I just, I couldn't stand her. Like what? Like what? What are some well, of the other ones? This, this is one of them. Yeah. I, I can't stand her in Swamp Thing. Yeah. Um, Was that her fault? Or no, you, or that's it... what I'm saying. I'm saying it's probably because she plays, you know, these annoying characters. Like, Wait a minute, Chris. She takes her clothes off in Swamp Thing. Yes, she does. Yes, she does. In the R-rated cut, at yes, least. Yes, I know. I know. You can't... I, mean, I love her in The Fog. I love her in Cannonball Run. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
I think it goes without saying that both of us love every actor in this movie yeah. and probably would give anything to just be able to hang out with them yeah. and just talk about anything they wanted to, any kind of performance, anything. Like mm-hmm. They're all the kind of actors that you just could sit on the floor cross-legged in front of and just go tell me a story well actually i think you would probably want to stand you know a little bit spread eagle and let them kick you in the jimmy repeatedly just to say i was kicked in the nuts by adrian barbeau <laughs> you know me so well I think it's part of which sells the match. The performances are so good. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they're exactly pitched where they need to be. Like again, Romero has this deft balance for the tone. Like if he went even in like an inch over everybody, it would just topple the whole thing. Yeah. It's so, and now, you know, we've got, there are two other creep show movies and a series after this. Yes. And they, you know, I, I we don't I don't like to disparage too much here, but like they don't hold a candle to to what this movie does. Yes, Creepshow Two has its cult of followers, its love uh, people that love it. Personally, that's not me. Um, yeah, I I enjoy the movie. I own it. I watched I watch it probably every couple of years. Um, well, there you go. That one kind of pulls a little bit more from Stephen King's short stories rather than being originally written. I mean, The Raft. The Raft. And that, you know, obviously that's the best segment of the film. It also is uh, the segment of the film. And I don't think I'm alone in this. Um, that was, those were some very, uh, Im- uh, we call those VITs in that film. Uh, or VIBs, if you want to be less crude. Those are some very important boobies that appear in the Creep Show 2 mm-hmm. that I have talked to several uh, adult men in my life that have said those boobs in the, the raft segment of Creep Show 2 made me a man. <laughs> <laughs> there are people who just have such a visceral reaction to the nudity in that movie, yeah. which, by the way, does not. Um, you know, taking advantage of a sleeping woman is, is not a good idea. Yeah. But they get their come up. Every twelve-year-old boy that saw that movie was like, just could had that dream of being on a raft with the woman of their dreams and getting a chance. You know, like it's such a funny thing. Then, of course, there's a, uh, you know, Creepshow Two. Unfortunately, only has three segments, and that's yeah. part of I think the flaw with it is again we talked about the pacing of this movie, and. Yeah, the other one's just uneven. It's a you know this movie's two hours long. Creepshow two is probably eighty five minutes long, but it drags. It's only three stories and it drags. Yeah. Um, there's also a Creepshow three. Um, the less said about Creepshow three, I think, the better. Have you ever seen that one? No. Honestly, I didn't know there was a Creepshow three. Yeah, I, mean, I always always heard the stories that. Tales from the Dark Side was the unofficial Creepshow three, but it and it, and it was uh, except, but Creepshow three was you know the rights uh, after Laurel kind of folded, the rights moved around, and uh, the people that ended up making Day of the Dead uh, two, do you remember that one? That's the one with the girl from 
Not to be confused. Beauty. Not, nope. That's no. Steve Miner's remake of Day of the Dead oh. with Ving Rhames. There's a movie called Day of the Dead 2 Contagion. Oh, okay. Do you remember it now? Yeah. And it was made by, I want to say, I'm like seeing the names like Anna Clavel and, and somebody else, a duo. The same people, they basically bought the Laurel rights. So they made Day of the Dead 2 and they made Creep Show 3. Um, and Creep Show 3 is, is. And which would be more ac- accurate? Would it be Crap Show 3 or Shit Show 3? <laughs> I, think, I, I think it's. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a bad movie, for sure. Oh, that's hitting below the belt. Now, come on, Adrian. <laughs> Hello, Fluffy. There we go. Her arms... <laughs> Is that not the best line reading of that mm-hmm. that you can get? Oh, just... I'm going to throw up. Just tell it to cut. It's like, you know they probably did like several takes yeah. of that. And <laughs> he did something different probably every time. Um, I always kind of wish that you'd see like puke just kind of fall. Just like splattering <laughs> down. Yeah. One less, one more like thing to, yeah. So Creepshow 3 is pretty terrible. And then uh, after that, they spent a long time trying to to revive Creepshow. Unfortunately, the anthology format never really... It's on a, it's just never really done very well. Yeah. Um, there I don't was know a, why. There was a bit of a resurgence a few years ago with the VHS series and yeah. ABCs of Death and a couple of other things that kind of came out. Again, they're all reactions, in my opinion, to... This. This. And the, and, well, it's like with superhero movies, too. Everybody's chasing what happened with Richard Donner's Superman. You, well, not maybe not anymore. Maybe at the time. You mean like, like pre-Marvel Renaissance? I, know, I still think that that movie is still held as the gold standard for superhero movies. Okay. Well, you, well okay. How about this? How about for a more genre-specific... you? You can't make a movie about demonic possession without going, well, the exorcist did it. Yeah. But I mean, yes, this is this is definitely going to be the model to which you're going to compare everything else to. Because yeah. this fires on all fucking cylinders. Yeah. And, what, you know, again, we talked, I love the Amicus Tales from the Crypt. Mm-hmm. I love that movie. I love the series Tales from the Crypt. Well, actually... I love it, but that's a very hit and miss series. Yeah. Um, but the whole anthology thing just struggled for a long time, and it, it had a hard time trying to come back. They they wanted to do something with the Creep Show property. They couldn't quite. They did Tales from the Dark Side as a TV series, mm-hmm. followed up by Monsters, which I loved. Monsters TV series. I love both of those shows. Although, again, very hit and miss. Yeah. Some episodes are excellent. Some are brutally awful, like bad to the point where you go. I don't want to watch anymore. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, you had shows like The Hitchhiker mm-hmm. on HBO. Tales and from of the course, Crypt. Tales from the Crypt. Um, and Tales from the Crypt probably comes the closest. Although even then, it it, it it tended to drop the ball on its influences. This movie wears its influences on its sleeve. Yeah. Um, but the Creepshow property 
you know, they finally were able to make Tales from the Dark Side, the movie, in the 90s. Uh, or I believe, 90? 1990. Yeah. yeah. Um, and as you said earlier, John Harrison directed it. And then from then on, they struggled. There was a brief moment in time that they were going to do uh, a web series called Creepshow Raw <laughs> in the 2000s. They ended up making one episode uh, that was directed by, of all fucking people, dude, uh, Wilmer Valderrama oh, from that okay. 70s show. Uh, didn't didn't go over. Didn't yeah. nothing happened with it. And then try to do remake. And then finally the the property was picked up uh, by AMC and made into the the Shutter TV series that is about to start its uh, second season, mm-hmm. um, and is currently in production on season three. And have have you watched the Creepshow TV series? Yes, I've seen every episode. It's again, it's another show that you know they're doing something interesting in that they're bringing in different directors to tackle different episodes. They're pulling from you know some stories that have already been written um and also some original stories. I believe I believe there's straight up originals in there. Yes. Um to me, if I had a a, a note <laughs> for the show, it's that it never seems to hit the garish playfulness that that this movie does again it's it feels to me like the tone is incorrect a lot of the time um well you know i you know i don't know if this is something that kind of falls on nicotero's shoulders and everything too because generally with with a show like Creep Show, and I will use Tales from the Crypt as the model for that because, yeah. you know, this Creep Show is a standalone film. Sure. Okay. With a very decent budget. Yes. That show is an anthology series. Which show? Uh, Creep Show, the, the okay. television show. Tales from the Crypt would probably be the model that you would sort of want to follow because there is a defining tone overall for the Tales from the Crypt episodes. I mean, yeah. if you're watching a Tales from the Crypt episode, you kind of know you're watching a Tales from the Crypt sure. episode. And I don't know if that's because you've got Zemeckis and Guiler Walter and Walter Hill. Hill that are kind of overseeing production Cats, on yeah. that. And there's a certain continuity in style and tone that works for every episode. Well, it's also, you know, Tales from the Crypt was a list. They had a very big budget for every very episode true. of that show. And that's the thing, you know, without just, I'm, you know, we're not trying to shit on the Creepshow TV series at all. Yeah, honestly, I, I want nothing but success for of that course, show because of course. I want to enjoy what I've seen. And we, honestly, there's there's a lot of things to like about the Creepshow TV series. There were a few episodes that I was really disappointed with and everything. But, um, you know, I... It was it was the first season. Yeah, and I'm curious to see what's happening with the second season. And what most people don't know is that that show had, I believe, each episode was three day shooting schedule. Yeah, and then one day, sometimes one and a half days for uh, uh, effects work. Yeah, so that's not a whole lot of time. They, you know, and you know, but interestingly, they asked Joe Dante to direct an episode, mm-hmm. and he turned it down on for that reason alone. He's like three days. No. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, you get some, like, a genius like Bruckner in there who goes, give it to me. I can do it. I'll do it. Watch me. Yeah. And he does it, and he turns out, I think, in my opinion, the, the, the two best episodes of the, of that season. Man in Suitcase. Yeah. Which was written by my friend Chris Buhlman. That's right. And yeah. also the uh, the Scarecrow episode with uh, that was written, or based on a Lansdale yeah. short story. 
the two best. They actually that utilized the concepts of the garish lighting. Oh, and then you know what? I also really loved Rob Schraub's uh, the werewolf yeah. in prison one. That those were yeah the ones. But if you were to ask me, hey, if, look, man, Howie Mandel. <laughs> I can't wait for him to die. Mm. Um, if you were to ask me, what uh, my favorite? <laughs> yeah, what's uh, what's your favorite segment in Creep Show, Brandon? Okay, you know, I have to think that it probably would go f- to the they're creeping up on you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, E.G. Marshall's hair alone. Yeah, I mean, look at that hair right there. Uh, so, Chris, I feel that this episode. So, if 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 something to tide you over has just brilliant editing. This episode or this segment in particular, I think, is the most the best directed. Yeah. Um, There's something about the surrealism of it. Like by the time that the the, uh, you know, the the concierge is talking to him through the porthole Mm -hmm. very condescendingly, it has reached a level of like surreal terror do it. and panic do it now yeah do it now and the way that they do the the porthole acting yeah. is like a dream for a director I, like that an actor could have that natural instinct to like to do that uh, is brilliant um eg marshall plays probably one of the most despicable <laughs> human beings in horror movie history as Upson Pratt, who spends basically all of his time counting his money in a very Scrooge-like fashion, and he is also a germaphobe. His penthouse apartment is just clinical. I mean, just absolutely clinical. It's all stark white. Now, here's something interesting about that. Originally, it was designed as like a very ornate Victorian style rich guys kind of uh uh penthouse. Yeah. And I guess they uh Cletus Anderson built a miniature version of that mm-hmm. set um to show his as you often do in production you show a small version of your set to your director mm-hmm. and then you make your changes then it helps you with blocking it helps you understand how to board your shots. They decided they they built the small set and then they released a couple of cockroaches into the set and they realized that you couldn't see them. You couldn't see them and they would just hide under the furniture. Yeah. So they made a decision to remove that entirely and out of necessity. Cause I mean, white walls, black roach, the contrast is huge. It's incredible. And to think, and this is the thing that you don't, you know, when you're making a film, a lot of choices get made. A lot of, uh, Things fall by the wayside, and you're forced into a lot of decisions that you don't necessarily want to do. Look at the quaking in his face. His face is quaking. <laughs> <laughs> but in this situation, it's a, again, it's one of those happy accidents. Yeah. I can't. If this movie, if this sequence did not take place in a sterile white environment, it wouldn't be I, as it effective. It wouldn't be nearly as effective. Yeah. You know, so your first instinct as a filmmaker isn't always the right one to have. Yeah. And this this movie, I think, is a, a, you know, great proof of that. But putting that Wurlitzer, you know, jukebox in there. What song is this, by the way? Oh, no. Is it this song or is it the one from later? I can't hear. 
It's not this song. It's it's the song that plays later. You'll know what it's from. It's also used in another film. Um, you'll know it when you hear it. And I actually always thought that this was kind of spooky. The the woman calling to talk about how her husband, husband committed, committed suicide. suicide because of him. Uh, apparently, E.G. Marshall was super rad on this set. He yeah. had no problem with the bugs. Yeah. He was totally cool with it. But there was one person that had a problem with the bugs. And that was Romero? Nope. Savini? Yep. Yeah. He couldn't do it. And th- there's actually... Um, Honestly, that grosses me out. I, I couldn't do it. Yeah, I'm. I, how are you with bugs, man? Depends on the bug. Like what? Like okay, roaches are bother me. Uh, I'm kind of okay with spiders. Um, my wife definitely not so much. Yeah, she almost killed us on two seventy five one time. We were driving at you know seventy miles an hour on the interstate, and a spider went dashing across the outside. Of the windshield. <laughs> and she immediately started wailing on me with her fists. I'm driving the damn car and trying not to have an accident. I'm like, why the fuck are you hitting me? She's like, there's a spider. There's a spider. There's a... I said, it's outside. It's not going to be able to get to you. But, um, yeah. I mean, people just have their irrational fears. I, um, I, I'm not afraid of roaches, but they disgust yes, me. Yes, I think they're absolutely disgusting. To the point I where I'm afraid wanna, of them. I don't want to touch it. No way. Yeah. And I, and the, the concept of crushing, squashing them, I can't do it, man. That just spreads the filth and... The, the, the crunch. Mm. The uh, Like, it makes me fucking sick to my stomach. The whole... All of it. Um, and then spiders, I have... A serious case of arachnophobia. Yeah, I feel like we might have covered this in our creepy crawlies episode might have in season about one. This. Yeah, definitely. Uh, but things like grasshoppers and you know other things, you know, uh, butterflies, I'm moths. I'm fine, more or less fine with. Just you don't know. fly. Oh, wasps. No, don't don't want no wasps. I'm I'm talking about white people. Yeah, white yeah. Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Protestants. Yeah, they're disgusting. But if you're blacky lawless and you're saying scream until you like it, squaw, you know yeah, that's then a I'm, totally different kind of wasp. Yeah, I'm I'm all for it. If I had directed this film, I also would have not shown up on set the day the roaches were there. Yeah, this movie delivers again. Talk about perfect pacing. While there, we had some gory thrills in the crate. We had some, uh, you know, good, you know, black seawater blood pouring out of the forehead of Galen Ross and Ted mm-hmm. Danson. It saves the best for last. For last, uh, as far as the screams go, and this it never, ever fails to elicit a reaction from whoever is watching this movie. Yeah. It, never. Somebody is always screaming when this movie gets put on. What do you on. think that pigeon shit is? We should ask Cletus Anderson. Yeah. It looks... Uh, you know, man, that's an attention to detail that is it, incredible. Because that's... I mean, it's a shot looking in through his window into Upson Pratt's penthouse. But you can see the outer ledge outside of the window. And it's just it's and some, covered, in, and, and Cletus, covered in pigeon yeah, shit. He was like, we've got to do it. It, w- it wouldn't be clean. 
We've all been here, Upson. We've all mm. <laughs> we've all. This is so disgusting. I love he's got this spatula to like splop it around, make it even more disgusting. And what it is? It's 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 raisin bran in a food processor, right? Yeah, like I guess. And this is this is every I think every honey bunches votes bug haters phobia right here. Oh yeah. Oh my god. Oh my god, we've all been there, haven't we? Yes. Yes, we have. This music doesn't make it any easier. <laughs> Here's another he's another Romero staple. Yeah. I love that they ran the the vo- vocals through this processor, the synthesizer, to give it that warble. <sighs> that's the news interviewer from Dawn of the Dead. Yep, that's right. Good call. People <clears throat> like yourself. People of color. God. <laughs> Do it now. <laughs> his his performance. Oh my god. So E. G. Marshall is prob what do you think E. G. Marshall is best known for? Uh the FBI. You think that's his best known role? I, I, honestly, I mean, I think that's where, particularly when this movie came out, yeah. everybody's going to be like, oh, yeah, he was on the FBI. Now, when you think of, uh, what do you, I guess, do you think of Creepshow? I think of Creepshow, but I mean, probably to audiences after this, too, it would be Christmas Vacation. You know, he's one of the grandfathers in Christmas Vacation. That's right. The nice grandfather, like the nicest one, the one who... He's the asshole grandfather. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm thinking yeah. of. Don't let's not. Confuse. I've got to eat. I need to take right. my back pill. That's right. Let's not confuse like I just did. E. G. Marshall with R. G. Armstrong. Yeah, who are both in Christmas Vacation. R. G. Armstrong. Is he's in Christmas the Vacation? other grandfather. No, he's not. Yes, he is. No, he's not. Who is? It's John. Oh God, what's his name? Not. Uh, crap. It's not, it's not R.G. Armstrong. R.G. Armstrong was the general in the Predator. R.G. Armstrong was Pruneface and Dick Tracy. R.G. Armstrong was Pruneface and Dick Tracy, I'm yes. telling you, R.G. Armstrong is, is Clark Griswold's father. No. He's Griswold no. Sr. No. Really? I, I, yes. Are you gonna, are you gonna look it up? I'm gonna look up the magic box. Okay. Oh, here we go. Roaches. Roaches everywhere. We will we will come to a conclusion on this before the movie is over, but do it fast because mm-hmm. good stuff's coming. Yes, I know. John Randolph. John Randolph plays the other grandfather. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> guess I'm going to have to suck Chris Holcomb's dick tonight. Lost that bet. We have an agreement that every time one of us gets something wrong, we have to blow each other. <laughs> I 
<laughs> I love the terror. This is disgusting. Yeah, and like so many different breeds of cockroach and those Madagascar hissing cockroaches. Yeah, there's a couple of those giant ones. So they said that, you know, they were like, they had bug wranglers, obviously. And they this movie, by the way, the sets were built um, in an abandoned high school. Mm-hmm. That's where they set up the whole production facility. Yeah. They had their offices there, and they built the sets in the gymnasium, very much like Evil Dead 2 did. Yeah. Um, they shot this sequence, and they said, we got rid of all the bugs. Everybody is that worked on this movie, after the bug wranglers, said, no, they didn't. They were all over the set. The cockroaches just were everywhere yeah. after the sequence was shot. It's like, because no, why wouldn't they be? That's fucking disgusting. Ugh. Oh, my God. One of the most nightmarish things. They, Visceral. The other story, too, by the way, is that uh, the rat party for this movie. Um, they had a rat party? <laughs> like round and round rat party? Yeah, they or, had yeah. rats showed up. <laughs> round and round. Oh, we can't sing that because we won't be able to air this episode we don't own the rights to it um the rap rap party Mm -hmm. um where he goes my name is eg marshall and i'm here to say i hate cockroaches in every way Mm -hmm. that was the rap party he they gave a cake and they filled the cake with dates nice which is awesome yeah this is what creeped me out her her voice oh yeah 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 Oh, God. Which, you know, they kind of recycle this sort of bit in in Tales from the Dark Side. Yeah, the cat from hell? Yeah. I mean, it does the exact same payoff. Yeah. The exact same payoff, but it's not nearly as effective. Yeah. Part of it's because you know that David Johansson's had thicker things down his throat. Yeah, definitely. Than a cat. Most definitely. Is David Johansson alive? Yes. Still? Okay. He's great in uh, Scrooged. He is? Yes, they do, Mr. White. Oh, my God. That's you know, a really good dummy, though. That was him, for real. Now we're at oh, a dummy. Yeah. And you can kind of see the difference, but it doesn't matter because the tissue Jesus, paper, the the um, expulsion here that right. Yeah. Oh, my God. Uh, I mean, mm. perfect. Yeah, <laughs> it's perfect. Now, have you read the actual comic that they released? Uh, you want to know something? I I ordered it. <laughs> yeah. I just haven't gotten it yet. Oh, did you order it before this? Yeah. Oh, it's great, man. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. It looks just like that. <laughs> uh, close. It's close. It's Bernie Wrightson did the art yeah. for the comic book, and it's beautiful art. Well, I mean, yes. <gasps> Dude, um, I just found out. I just discovered. And by the way, we get our little. Our friend Tom. Tom Cameo here. Um, I just discovered uh, they made a Creepshow 2 comic book, but they never released it. Hmm. And uh, you know who did the art? That is the cab driver from Tales from the Dark Side of the movie. Marty Schiff. Yeah. 
Except he was bald in that movie. What the fuck you laughing at? So the art for the Creepshow 2 comic book, Chris, was mm-hmm. done by Kelly Jones. Really? And I found it. Um, I, I'm going to show it to you after this. Uh, I, they, there's even pencils. I've like been inking it just for fun. Yeah. Like I have it on my iPad. I've been inking it. Nice. Mm, there you go. <laughs> Tom Atkins. Oh, I love Tom Atkins. Yeah. For years, my dream project, I wanted to do a Tom Atkins and Brian Dennehy buddy cop film. Nice. The two of them as old men, mm-hmm. like a buddy cop film with a score by Tangerine Dream. Wow. Could you imagine? Yeah, actually, I kind of could. I know you could. Yeah. Uh, my friend Jeremy Henderson and I tried writing a draft of it. We couldn't really cr- crack the story. Yeah. But uh, we, we, we did it for a little while there. That's awesome. Teach you to throw away my comic books. This is both Chris, me and Chris when we were kids. Yep. That's not true. My, my, my dad was the one that introduced me to this fucking movie. Yeah. But... Love it. Love that freeze frame. Yeah. And then, you know, we go into the animation again. I just... And, if, and the score, the it's legitimately creepy with the whispering and everything. Honestly, Chris, I don't know that... Like, this is, a, this is for me, mm-hmm. a perfect film. I don't... There's... Nothing wrong with it, yeah, I, I, in my opinion. My, uh, you know, Jamie and I, my wife and I, we have what we. Yeah, it is Bing O'Malley. Yep, you're right. Um, we have what we call our practically perfect movies. Okay, that's interesting that you use the yeah, term. We, we practically call, them, we call perfect. them practically perfect because honestly, I mean, you know, perfection is just one of those. things I mean, it's that, subjective, you know. right? Because what does that even mean? But, but yeah, uh, yeah, I would definitely classify this as a practically perfect movie. Nice, definitely. nice. I just i I'm hard pressed to. Okay, we were earlier. We talked. We we kind of teased this, but the idea that, um, you know, where does this rank in the George Romero filmography? Mm-hmm. For me, I. Night of the Living Dead, I think, is one of the most important films in cinema history. Mm-hmm. I Dawn of the Dead is in my list of favorite films of all time, but it's also tied to Night. I cannot separate the two of them. Uh, try as I might, they are like it's kind of like Phantasm one and two. They kind of belong together for yeah. me. Um, and I think both of those movies are probably far more important historically. But I don't think I, I don't have as much fun with those movies like I do with Creepshow. I can I can see that definitely. And so that's kind of where it lays for me. It's hard because my all time favorite movie is, is Dawn, Dawn of, of the Dead. Dead, right? You know, so it, that, that's a tough one. But um, once again, from a tonal standpoint, this movie and. Dawn of the Dead are just two totally different types of films. Although um, the playfulness is there. You can see him as yes, a director where he shows. Definitely. Um, 
but I don't think, you know, social commentary it doesn't really play into this movie at all. No, and that probably has more to do with Stephen King than anything. Definitely. But, you know, Romero himself kind of, he was a very, again, we're using this word a lot, but a very playful guy. Very, very, he had a wonderful sense of humor. And he knew what he was doing, you know? Yeah. And I think he knew exactly what he was doing when it comes to Creepshow. This was Creepshow, 1982. Mm-hmm. Wow, what a year. This movie is almost 40 years old. Unbelievable to think about. <sighs> Rated R. So I hope none of you children were watching it. Oh, fuck. Did you hear that? <laughs> well, this is our very first uh, commentary. Oh, God damn it. Um, the mutant raccoons are in the f- fucking dumpster again. Oh, God. Fuck. So do, do we have to take care of this now? Uh, Can we- well... <sighs> I mean, look, there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I think we got nine bodies still in that thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, honestly, they'll probably chew on that for a little while longer. But let's put it this way. The longer they chew on it, the more pieces we have to pick up. I'm telling you, Chris, we really need to hire some help. Yeah. That's getting kind of out of control. But it's hard to find good help these days. That's true. Well, you get what you pay for. Well, that was uh, that was our episode commentary, our, our, our weird little bonus feature that yes. we, uh, we wanted to introduce. Maybe we'll be and doing more. I tell more you what, this feature gives me a boner like nobody's business, man. Love me some creep show. <laughs> Love me some creep show. Thank you guys so much for listening. I hope uh, you had a, a swell time. Yeah, I had a good time. We this, should do this again. Yeah, hey, maybe we should. Yeah, let's just keep it on the DL because the driving gods, you know, they're like, crack that whip. Please don't tell anybody. Yeah. Download the episode, but please don't tell the driving gods that we're yeah. doing this. They will be very displeased mm-hmm. with us. And then we'll be forced to eat tons of meteor shit. <laughs> well, once again, I am Brandon Windish. And I am Chris Holcomb. And remember, at this drive-in, if the cars are rocking... It doesn't necessarily mean someone's fucking. They're probably being murdered. Under 17, not admitted without parent.